Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, episode 27. Titus in Pompeii and the family of the Holconii. To be absolutely honest, we do not know for a fact that Titus was in Pompeii in AD 79 or that he mingled with members of the Holconii family if he were. The speculation falls into the must-have-done category of narration so ill-favored by those who review books of ancient history. It's a fair cop up to a point, but when you're dealing with material as filled with gaps and missing pages as ancient history, well, sometimes you just have to improvise. Or give it up entirely and write historical fiction inspired by true events. We do know that he went south in AD 74 and 76 to preside over some games in Naples and boost the family brand. We know also of a third unspecified visit prior to the eruption. And as a general rule, newly ensconced autocrats are well advised to make nice to their subjects in those first crucial early days to set minds at ease, to reassure the great and the good, or at least the rich and the influential, of that area that all was well with the empire, that he, Titus, was fit and sane and ready to keep things that Vespasian had begun on an even keel. It seems inconceivable that the new boss would not have made the rounds of the provinces to assure any doubters that nothing serious was going to change under new management. Titus would have been imprudent not to make himself present. And let's face it, if you're going to go to the Bay of Naples, summer's a nice time to do it. No arguing that point. The Bay of Naples has been an attractive place for millennia, largely for its natural resources, soil rich in nutrients, waters rich in edible seafood, a shoreline largely protected from ocean storms, and, of course, stunning views. As with any naturally wonderful place, it can only accommodate a certain number of people until life becomes difficult, if not unbearable. In the case of the Bay of Naples of the first century, we can liken it to the Hamptons of Long Island. In living memory, those towns were a place of potato farmers and fishermen, hard-working sons of the land and sea. Cheap real estate attracted the artistic sorts back in the 50s, and charm and relative propinquity to New York City attracted the summer crowd. Hard to find those potato fields today, and fishermen have been hurting for some time. So it was with the ancient Bay of Naples. It became a place for the moneyed esthetes and the calculating lowlifes to gather, chiefly in summer, for those who could afford it, and in Augustus's time many could, Competition for fine villas was keen. Strabo, writing at that time, describes a region adorned by villas and plantations so close together that to the eye they appear but one city. Seneca, writing in the days of Nero, tells us of people staggering about a drunk on the beach, carousing on the equivalent of yachts, engaging in choral singing, all of which makes the philosophical texts so far mostly Epicurus, found in the library at the Villa of the Papyri at Herculaneum, fit right in. Not as much as the exuberant works of Petronius, whose satiricon ascribes all manner of ill-advised debauchery, but at least genteel. 
good times in any event. In general, the greater excesses were a Julio-Claudian phenomenon and less a feature once Vespasian came to power. The old warhorse was, as we've noted, famously, even notoriously, frugal in his personal choices. He did not, for example, live in any of the grand palaces of the Palatine Hill, but in the more subdued, which is not to say strained, household near the gardens of Sallust. Tacitus makes this as the mark of the newly exalted provincial senators, frugality despite wealth, sobriety rather than self-indulgence. There were, of course, exceptions. By the time Vespasian came to power, the real estate situation around the bay was somewhat fraught. For some of the small farmers pushed out of their familiar living, there was the option of catering to the tourist trade. Juvenal, writing a little after this time, describes that happy lot of the villa caretakers who get to live like their masters, who are only present a few weeks out of the year. But, in general, as Pliny the Elder noted, the situation was bad for the country. Vespasian saw this as well. We get to one of those must-have-done moments now, since ancient sources have the two men discussing matters of state during Vespasian's reign. As discussed earlier, it was Vespasian who had his underlings claw back the public property lines so insouciantly appropriated by rich landowners to expand their agricultural business. Which is not to say that the Julio-Claudian family properties on the Bay of Naples were of no interest to the Flavian family. They were. They passed on with the office of emperor, though, to be fair, there were not all that many living descendants of Augustus, and those few were already housed elsewhere. By the way, Aulus Vitellius, a man of considerable excess, the man whom Vespasian replaced as emperor, had strong connections to the area, having lived on Capri in the days of Tiberius, alleged by some to have been one of the emperor's boy toys. Why then did Vitellius not get unanimous support down south during the civil war of AD 69? Economics. Vespasian's power base was in the east and in Egypt. Vitellius, all grotesque banquets and indifference to civic administration, looked to be making a hash out of the office, and there was little evidence that he would change for the better. Basically, many began to think as Agricola had, as we discussed last time. By the time the Flavians did get in charge, times were not bad for everyone, it seems. Regardless of who owned the land, trade was still making its way across the Mediterranean. Merchants were getting good money. Foreign agents had permanent offices in the area. Puteoli was prosperous enough to put up a fine amphitheater, third largest in the empire, possibly designed by the same crew that was finishing up the Colosseum in Rome. The Colosseum in Rome, now nearly finished, being the overall largest but back to Titus and his suggested hegira around the bay. But back to Titus and his suggested tour around the bay. Again, not a bad idea to check in on his subjects, remind them that Rome was paying attention, dispense a little justice, grant a few imperial favors, the sort of things that newly minted autocrats are well advised to do. Who and what would interest him in Pompeii? 
One attraction could have been the Temple of Vespasian. It's in all the guidebooks. Well, it predates Vespasian and is probably intended for Augustus, or to the spirit of Augustus, if we're being technical about it, and maybe not even to him, or them. It's a small, even charming temple off to one side of the forum. It houses a marble bas-relief showing a sacrificial procession, which involves a rather upbeat-looking sacrificial bull. Clearly, he has no idea what is about to happen, which ignorance is good if the sacrifice is to be acceptable to the gods. The scene is a standard subject in places of this sort, and of temples to Augustus in general. The lack of any particular emperor simplifies the matter of shifting religious focus once one emperor supplants the next. Sounds like the sort of thing that Titus would have been an honored guest to oversee. But that's probably overreach, speculation-wise. Sounds like something an earnest tour guide might say. Possibly the locals considered Titus to be just another tourist, albeit one to whom it would pay to flatter a little more than usual or a lot more than usual. If the temple wasn't finished, well, all to the better. It showed that the hearts of Pompeians were in the right place, that even as the rest of the city was a large work of ongoing urban renewal, the city fathers and others nevertheless found it worth their while to honor the sitting emperor. Psychologists claim that flattery works on people to some degree, even when they know it's insincere or opportunistic. Worth a shot. Unless, of course, that someone is one of the crankier or lunatic Julio-Claudian emperors attempting to butter up Tiberius or Caligula when they were in their less cheery moods could get you into serious trouble. So who there might have wanted some quality time with the new emperor? We mentioned Suetius Clemens, the fixer of Pompeii, in a previous episode. He had long since gone on to other gigs, and wasn't a local anyway. Social mobility in Pompeii, at least, could be a matter of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And some of the old guard abandoned the city after the earthquake, or the families just died off. An exception was the Olconii, described by one scholar as the most prominent of the Augustan gentes. The Holconi family was deeply rooted in the area, arguably of Etruscan or Samnite origin, made rich via viticulture. Possibly they were among those who had been guilty of snickling off bits of public land before a man like Suedes Clemens made them give it back. Their product was, like Scaurus and his garum, notable enough to be asked for by name. They also had a sideline and roof tiles, a good business in the aftermath of the earthquake and its subsequent Nero-subsidized rebuilding. Pompeii had mixed history with the powers that were in the city of Rome. The city chose the losing side in the social war of 90 to 88 BC and suffered for it. Sulla, Rome's dictator, forced the city to make room for some 2,000 of his veterans and their families. Somewhat surprisingly, the integration seems to have worked with a minimum of ill-feeling. No evidence to the contrary, at least. None that I know of, at any rate. The Holconi seem to have endured and even regained favor under Augustus. Members of the Holconi were able to shine, most notably Marcus Holconius Rufus, 
dates unknown, but early part of the first century A.D. He had a long slew of local offices over the years. He also had the temerity of erecting a statue of himself, or so it was said, in the Forum. These days, you can visit it in the Naples Archaeological Museum. He also had a brother, Marcus Holconius Keller, not far behind him in titles and honors, albeit with no known statue. Perhaps one will turn up. With high office comes great responsibility, and Holconii family money was dedicated to underwrite public works, notably the local theater, modeled on the theater of Marcellus in Rome, and dedicated to Augustus. You could argue that the Holconii were deliberately aping Augustus in presenting the building to the people. Big fish, small pond... The family chugged along nicely through the reign of Tiberius, also under Caligula. Pandering to Caligula made a certain kind of sense to a politically-minded Roman. His position was accepted, if not exactly legal, but more than that, he was young, only 27, and relatively healthy. His great-grandfather Augustus had lived to be 75. Absent assassination... His father and grandfather had untimely deaths, let's leave it at that. Rome could expect the stripling to be around for some time. And so the Holconi flourished. There are reports of some sort of local problem requiring imperial interference, which meant Caligula was elected duovir quinquinalis of Pompeii. It seemed a good idea at the time. But the emperor was already at odds with the Roman Senate, and when he was assassinated in AD 41, any association became a liability. The temporary occlusion of the Holoconii, as one scholar puts it, apparently occurred because of their too close association with Caligula. Suddenly, Holoconii disappear from the roles of the magistrates. How much recrimination and wailing and plotting must have occurred over the dinner tables in those years. Memories fade and new outrages push aside old grievances. AD 59 saw the murder of Nero's mother Agrippina. More on that the next episode. AD 59 saw the murder of Nero's mother Agrippina. More on that in the next episode. And the great amphitheater riots, Pompeians versus Nucarians. Pompeians versus Nucarians. Nucaria was a town a few miles away from Pompeii, founded by Nero as a place to settle his veterans. He took a personal interest in their well-being. Not having a theater of their own, the locals came to Pompeii for a bit of diversion. On the occasion in question, a city rivalry broke out in the stands. Jeers and insults led to sticks and stones. Technically, arms were not allowed in the theater itself, but perhaps this was ignored. Or there were calls to take the fight outside the stands, which circumstance aided Pompeians, who had weapons close to hand that the Nucerians could not readily match. Nucerians died. All very unpleasant. The Nucerians, beaten on the ground, took the matter up in court. No reason not to. They were, after all, favorites of the emperor. Oddly, however, the emperor did not interfere. 
The Nutrian gripe went from Nero to Senate to Consuls to Senate again, no one wanting to take a decision. Final decree, no games and exile for the organizer, who was an old Caligula crony, and so not someone to be missed. No evidence of any Holoconii suffered directly, but they did, on the other hand, share the same taint of Caligula. Sometimes it's best to keep one's head down and let others do what they're going to do. For nearly 30 years, a generation and a half, the Holoconii were eclipsed by other younger families, with only the family business to keep them comfortable. Possibly the statues of Marcus still graced the forum, an inspiration or a rebuke for the family survivors. The earthquake of AD 62 must have created a bull market in roofing tiles. Then, suddenly, for reasons lost to us, the name reappears with the arrival of the Flavians. The reasons can only be guessed. Possibly the family threw weight and money behind the Flavian ticket early enough in the year of four emperors to make their loyalty count. Whatever the reason, they were back in the saddle, or at least on the magistrates' lists. The final thought, not so much a must-have-been as a could-have-been, that temple, the one dedicated to Vespasian. For years, it was believed that it was connected to a marble plaque reading, Mamia, a daughter of Publius, public priestess, to the genius of the colony, or of Augustus, on her own land and at her own expense. That connection is generally no longer believed. But if not her, then whom? Unclear just then who on Pompeii had serious money, and who was just faking it, but giving everything else we know, there's a case to be made that some of the Holconi family trust went in that direction. So much for Pompeii for the time being, and Titus's possible appearance in the summer of AD 79. Next step, the rather higher rent town of Herculaneum, where we do have some intriguing and amusing evidence of Titus's appearance and likely at about this time. Until next time, then, thank you for listening.